Does it work? Does it work? Okay, it works there. <clears throat> it's been a long time since I've been up here. And they used to call on Larry when they needed somebody to do something, and Larry's the only one that would get up here and do it. Back then, I didn't have to wear my glasses. I do now. So we're going to read Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. In the Pew Bibles there, it's on page 2864. So, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, on page 864. Let's read together. Soon afterward, he went out through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the lessons that you can teach us in, in, from the scriptures, and we just ask now that you would be with Pastor Andrew as he preaches, Lord, and just help him to share this, this news that we, he's going to give us today and just ask you bless us and bless our church. In Jesus' name, amen. You can see in our text, uh, Jesus is doing his thing. Uh, he's on a preaching tour, and he is making his way through all the different towns and cities uh, preaching, right? That's what it says in verse 1. Soon afterward, soon after what we just read about and thought about last week with the, the woman being forgiven, soon after that, Jesus went on through cities and villages doing this, proclaiming and bringing the good news. And that's in the present tense. Jesus was continually proclaiming. He was continually bringing the good news. And this is very similar to what we've read in a couple other passages, such as Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, if you can remember that text, or if you want to flip there real quick. Luke 4, 18 through 19, Jesus says about his ministry, he's just beginning his, his public ministry, he's just been baptized, comes out of the temptation in the wilderness, and he quotes this from Isaiah, Luke 4, 18 and 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news of the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And notice again, to proclaim, right, that we're proclaimed for the third time, the year of the Lord's favor. So this emphasis on, on preaching. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, just a few verses later after what we just read, Jesus says this, I must preach. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Do you hear that divine must? I must, Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news, and then I was sent for this purpose, to preach, to proclaim, to bring the good news. That's his mission. Jesus' mission was not necessarily to heal. Jesus' mission was not necessarily to cast out demons. He, he did those things, but he did those things to validate or authenticate his ministry, his preaching ministry, uh, that through him the kingdom of God is being inaugur inaugurated and, and crashing into uh, the present age in which we live. And Jesus had no time to waste with this. And so every city he could, every village he could, he would preach here, there, and everywhere, it says in our text. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages. Every place became his pulpit. Every town, every city became his audience. And again, he preached the good news, proclaiming the good news. He was doing that wherever he could, whenever he could, to whoever he could. He had the opportunity to be the, the world's greatest healer, but he goes on to be the world's greatest preacher. Again, proclaiming and bringing the good news. The good news of what? Our text says, the good news of the kingdom of God. So what I want to do for a few minutes is explain what uh, the kingdom of God is. 
Uh, the, the Bible talks a lot about the kingdom of God. It is often uh, in, in, in his mouth as, as he preaches. It's often in the text. And I remember, remember I, w- I was saved at the age of 17. I'd grown up hearing the Bible a lot, reading the Bible a lot, but never really thinking much about the kingdom of God until uh, maybe about 15 years ago. I was like, my goodness, this is a major, major, major part of the Bible, and I'm not sure I understand it. So I dug, dug deep into it. I'm not, still not sure I understand it uh, that well today, but I want to share just a few things about the kingdom of God uh, this morning that Jesus would go about preaching constantly. In fact, it's the very first thing he preaches. On Mark one fifteen, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So the very first words out of his mouth are, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. And then, it's, as I said, it's constantly in his vernacular, constantly preaching about it, bringing the good news about it. Uh, the Greek word basileia for the kingdom is found 170 times in the New Testament. Most of those come from Jesus. That's a lot. They'll be talking about the kingdom of God. It's a major theme in the beginning, in the middle, and the end of his ministry. It's a major theme in the apostles' preaching. In Acts chapter 19, verse 8, we read that Paul entered the synagogue for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. Three months reasoning and explaining boldly about the kingdom of God. And we read at the end of Acts, in Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, uh, these verses, it says, when they have, and Paul's in prison at this point, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, from morning till evening, again, he's in prison doing this, that he expounded to them, listen what he expounded, testifying to the kingdom of God. And then verse 31 of Acts 28 says, he lived in Rome for two years at his own expense after he's, he's released from prison. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. See how that's a major theme? Major theme at the beginning, the middle, the end of Jesus' ministry, a major theme in the, in the preaching of the apostles. And the question becomes, what in the world is this kingdom of God? As you think about it, even our mission statement as a church is believe, belong, become, build. And the build there is God building his kingdom. What is meant by that? What does the scripture mean by that? And in your notes, you can see I have four Four things I want to point out about it. The first thing I want to point out about the kingdom of God is that it refers to the rule of God over the people of God. The kingdom of God refers to the rule of God over the kingdom of God. Now, of course, God is sovereign and rules over all of the earth, over all of the universe. But when we read about the kingdom of God, we are reading about and thinking about God's specific rule over those he has redeemed, over those he has saved. And no doubt, probably when you hear kingdom, you kind, your mind goes medieval, and you start picturing castles with moats and drawbridges and knights on horses and land, right? You think land. And certainly when you read the kingdom of God, you can think land. Uh, You have Adam and Eve who are in the Garden of Eden and God's kingdom over them. You have Israel and their land and the land of Canaan. In the future, the new heavens and the new earth, we will live and reign forever with Jesus on the new earth, the new land. But it doesn't always refer to land. It first and foremost refers to relationship. And so that's why I say the first point about the kingdom of God is it refers to God's rule over God's people. You hear kingdom, think relationship. Relationship with God. <clears throat> That's why we can read in places like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 about people who being in or out of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So the kingdom is about relationships, it's about people, and you're either in it or out it. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it's about a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only those who have recognized their sin and renounced their sin who were made citizens of this kingdom. You got that one? We're We're nailed down on that one? 
The second one is this. The second truth to think about when you hear about God's kingdom is it refers to, the, uh, to Jesus Christ as the king, the reign of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read in places like Colossians 1.13 that God the Father has, quote, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so when you read about the kingdom of God, you must think about the reign of King Jesus, the reign of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite often, Jesus will refer to the kingdom as my kingdom. He does that in Luke 22. And so this is why we would say and echo the scriptures that entrance into the kingdom is only through Christ and Christ alone. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one enters but by him. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved because he is the king of the kingdom. And he is, you are received by faith and trust in him. Thirdly, and this is maybe where it gets a little more tricky, is the kingdom of God is already but not yet. You're like, what in the world is that jibber-jabber you're talking about, Pastor Andrew, already but not yet? What's, what's that nonsense? Uh, but the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is inaugurated or that it's begun, but it's not here yet fully and that it's being revealed in stages. And so by not yet is meant the future when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And you can read about it in Revelation 21. You can read about it in Isaiah 65. And it gives this fantastic vision or picture of how when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and the new Jerusalem, which is heaven, descends and comes down onto the earth. And you have this beautiful picture of no more mourning, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more death. It says the, the gates of the city are open forever, which is to say there are no more enemies. And God is now ruling and reigning in perfect righteousness and peace. Has that happened yet? It hasn't, has it? That's the not yet. That's yet to come. But there are ways in which God now, his kingdom is present now and is working towards that. So that's the already. So we kind of live in this, this tension, if you will, between what God says will happen in the future versus what he's doing in the here and now, the already and the not yet. When Jesus Christ uh, performs these miracles, remember back with John, doubting John, we talked about that. Remember what, what Jesus says uh, to John's disciples when they question, are you really the one? Back in Luke 7, uh, verse 20, it says, when the men, that's John's disciples, came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus' response is, verse 21, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. What Jesus is saying there, if you remember, he's quoting a number of messianic texts back in Isaiah, and Jesus is affirming right there that the kingdom has broken in. And that as he uh, heals and casts out demons and even raises from the dead, he is giving a picture of what the kingdom will be like in its fullness in the future, but is here in part now through his earthly ministry. You see, that, that, that's what's happening there. He's demonstrating what the kingdom of God will be like. He's also waging war. He's a counteroffensive against the dominion of darkness. And so that's the tension that you and I feel as Christians day by day, the tension of Romans 7 where Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death, right? What I want to do, I don't do that. What I don't want to do, I do that. You know, that, that tension that we all feel, right? That's, that's this already, not yet, that, that this kingdom of God has broken into our day and age. We're living in it, but not yet in its fullness. We have the Spirit of God within us, and yet we still grieve the Spirit of God. We've been delivered from the power of sin, and yet we still sin. We've been given unity with God and one another, yet we still struggle with harmony and relationships and, and difficulties. That's why we have a counseling ministry here, right? Because that happens. You put this many people in a room, there's going to be what? Conflict. There's going to be disharmony uh, and 
there's a weird part of me that gets excited about that because, yes, that's a great opportunity to work through this and see how the gospel relates. We can put into practice this already not yet tension. <clears throat> think of it, if it's helpful to think of it this way, it's helpful for me. Uh, think of it as D-Day for World War II. This idea of the kingdom being here now but not yet in its fullness. Now, let me just back up a second with that. G- my, it's my understanding of Scripture that when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, that that begins the kingdom of God. That as Jesus heals and raises the dead and casts out demons and preaches, that wherever he goes and does that, the kingdom of God is breaking into that present age. And then remember the night before he dies, he has the, the love feast, the Lord's Supper, and he says, take this cup, which is the blood of the what? The new covenant, the new work of God that he's beginning in this new age as his kingdom breaks in. And then the next day Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and he's risen from the dead three days later and defeats sin and Satan and death and darkness. That's D-Day for Jesus. And remember with World War II, many will say to you that on D-Day, Normandy Day, uh, where we suffered great casualties but we won the battle because we won that battle, we won the war. Ever hear that before? That D-Day settled it, that, that when we won D-Day, that that was so effective that the war, for all intents and purposes, was over. It set the tone for the rest of the war. Were there still battles to be won and fought? Yes, absolutely. So with the Christian life, that Jesus has come in, he's established his kingdom in part through the, his death, burial, resurrection on the cross. That's D-Day. He won the war. Now, there's still battles to be fought. And that ultimate battle is coming, of course, as Revelation speaks. And on that day, uh, he will usher in his kingdom in all of its fullness and glory and beauty. Now, the fourth thing to see about the kingdom of God, if you're still tracking with me, if I haven't lost you entirely with all of this, that the kingdom of God is currently manifested by you and me, which is to say the church. The kingdom of God today, its presence is manifested by us who believe. I think that's amazing to think about. That we, the church, God's redeemed people, we are the presence of the kingdom of God. And so wherever you go, you go to work, you're at your house, you're talking with your neighbor, you're here at church, wherever you go, your Walmart, Myers, wherever, that as you go there, so is the kingdom of God. And you are the manifestation of the kingdom of God. Because you have the spirit of God within you. And the spirit of God is bearing its fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It's bearing those fruits, which are the fruits of the kingdom. And so wherever you go, and as you love others with the love of Christ, and serve others as, as you know him more and glorify him more, that people see you in the way you talk and the way you act, and they're seeing, they should be seeing, that's what the kingdom of God is like. And it should create within them this, this, this should be like a magnet. We've talked about that before, that, that draws people in. Like, I want that. How do you have that? How, how, how has you come to have this joy and this peace and this forgiveness and this holiness about you? And it's because of what God has done in us and through us. So you see, the church today is the manifestation of the presence of the kingdom. Think, think of the church as an outpost, a military outpost, and we're surrounded by darkness. And we are to be that light and that salt influence. Think of the church as an embassy on which we see, where the world can see, the watching world can see what the kingdom of God is meant to be like. And we are to continue to serve and live this way until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So that's the kingdom. When I call you at 3 o'clock this morning, I'm going to ask you guys, what is the kingdom? And you're all going to be able to repeat those four things back to me perfectly. So start start memorizing it after the sermons. I don't want you to get distracted. But I, I hope that's helpful. I hope that helps you see... Uh, what the kingdom of God is about, why Jesus is proclaiming that, why he's bringing that good news, uh, that that promised kingdom uh, is here in part, and that he is the fulfillment, and he will one day usher it all in for his praise and for his glory. Now let me connect this for you 
to the Great Commission. In fact, turn if, with me, if you would, uh, to Matthew 28. <clears throat> Matthew 28. Keep your finger in Luke 8. But I just want you to see how this connects uh, to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. Remember that the second point I shared with you about what is the kingdom of God, it refers to the kingly rule of Christ, right? Remember that? You haven't forgotten it already, have you? Remember that part? So then, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All, what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm King Jesus. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the Messiah. And all authority has been given to me. He's King. And as the one who has authority, as the one who is in King, he has commandments for us, the citizens of his kingdom. And his commandment to us is essentially this. I'm your King. Go make disciples. Make disciples, right? I'm, I'm king. I, I've demonstrated this through my, my death, burial, and resurrection. All authority is given to me, and with all my authority, I am saying to you, I am commissioning you, I am sending you, make disciples. How do you do this? How do you make disciples? And you can wake, make your way through the text, and it shows you, but the very first thing we see is in verse 19. It says, what? What's the very first word in verse 19? Go. It's a present participle. As you are going, make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. Make this the constant business of your life. You don't go to work. You don't work errands. What you do is you're on mission for me. As you are going, whatever you're doing, as you live and move and have your being, you are on mission for me, making disciples. Now, as I say that, I hope that's echoing what we just read in Luke 8, verse 1. Right? Luke 8, verse 1 says that Jesus was going through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And now what does he say to us? He says to us, that as you are going through cities and towns and villages, here, there, and everywhere, you are to be making disciples. You are to be proclaiming the good news of the gospel, bringing the good news of the gospel. And you go, well, I'm no preacher. And Scripture says, oh, yes, you are. Did you know that? If you are a follower of Christ, you are a preacher. You are a preacher of the good news of the kingdom of God. If you don't believe me, turn to Romans 10 with me. We'll look at Romans 10 for, for a few minutes here. Romans chapter 10, and we're going to pick it up in verse 14. I'm, I'm just trying to, to connect some dots with you about the kingdom and Jesus' mission and how the constant business of his life is building the kingdom, and that's to be the constant business of our life as those commissioned by our king. So Romans chapter 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. And Paul says here, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of the gospel. Now I want you to notice in that text there's four rhetorical questions. From Paul. Four rhetorical questions, each beginning with that word, how. How then will they call? How are they to believe? How are they to hear? How are they to preach, right? And what that is, is, it's a logical chain that Paul is unpacking, a logical chain of steps that move from effect to cause. Not cause and effect, but effect to cause. It's a logical chain of steps where God is explaining how he saves people. He is explaining how he takes those who are under the kingdom of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of his son. Step one is we're sent, right? It says, verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are what? Sent. Are you sent? 
Yes and amen. We just read that in Matthew 28, 18. All authority is given to me. Now you go. All right? You're sent. You're sent to make disciples. So we're sent. So then what? What's the next step? It says you need to preach. Verse 14, how are they to hear without someone preaching? We're sent, just like Jesus, to preach, to proclaim, to bring the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know what you hear and think when you're hearing preacher. I'm not meaning you got to get up here and do this. But I mean, as you have your going, as you're at work, as you're at home, as you're, as you're at, out shopping, or you're running errands, that you are on mission for Christ. And you are preaching and proclaiming and bringing the good news through all your words and through all your actions. Listen, you can preach leaning over the fence in your backyard talking to your neighbor. You can preach over a cup of coffee. Or for me, it's, it's soda. For, me, for you, maybe it's water. Don't invite me over for coffee. I won't drink your coffee. I mean, you can invite me over, just not for the coffee part. It will just sit there. It will be wasted. But then my dad would like that because then it would be the next day, and to him that's the best coffee. It's a day or two old. The stronger and the more bitter, the better, he would say. But I hope what you're seeing from, from this text is that we're all commissioned like Christ to bring the good news, to be heralders, proclaimers of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ of speaking the truth in love wherever we can, whenever we can, to whoever we can. And I hope you note the urgency of that. The urgency of that is this, that if they don't hear, they cannot what? Believe. So the urgency of this text that's upon us is Jesus has sent us, just like he was going about preaching and proclaiming, he has now sent us to preach and proclaim because if they do not hear, they cannot believe. That's what the text says in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? See, we got to preach. We gotta speak the truth in love whenever we can, wherever we can, to whoever we can, trusting God with the results. Trusting God to do what God does as his word goes forth, which never returns void. Man, doesn't that excite you? It really excites me. It might make you feel overwhelmed, and I get that. That is overwhelming also. My goodness, God is building his kingdom. That's to be the constant business of my life. How am I supposed to do that? Who's sufficient for that? Who's competent for that? It's, it's kind of exciting and overwhelming at the same time. And we receive this wonderful encouragement in verse 15. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, he quotes Isaiah here, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So that text is asking you and me, are your feet beautiful? as you're walking about doing your errands, walking about stores, walking about your home, are your feet beautiful? Are they proclaiming the good news and bringing the good news of the kingdom? A podiatrist in Washington, D.C. estimated that by, in, a, in an average life, by the end of our life, we've actually walked the circumference of the earth four times. That makes me tired just thinking about it. But as you're walking, as you're going about your business, are you also going about the master's business? Are your feet beautiful? Are you walking with his mission? Are you bringing and proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? <clears throat> Up and until our dying breath or Jesus returns... We must make the constant business of our lives the passionate advance of the kingdom of God. That must be the constant business of our life, just like it was the constant business of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our master, we're his disciples. Disciples follow him, disciples imitate him, and so we imitate him. His constant business is proclaiming and bringing the good news. My constant business and your constant business is proclaiming and bringing the good news. Now, the way you do that is going to be different than how I do it because I'm gifted and wired differently than you are, and that's a beautiful thing. 
But what a calling, huh? To go into the marketplaces and the communities and our neighbors and to say, our God reigns. That he is building his kingdom and his son Jesus is the king. Won't you receive this kingdom? Won't you come into this kingdom? Won't you know his love, his peace, his forgiveness, his holiness? Won't you know that? Then repent and believe in Jesus who died for our sins, rose from the dead, lest you be swept away in judgment. Constant business of Jesus advanced the kingdom. The constant business of his disciples advanced the kingdom. So point two. If that's our constant business, then we must leverage our resources, our lives, for the advance of God's kingdom. <clears throat> we see in our text, back, back to Luke 8, that Jesus never travels alone, that Jesus always has uh, some, some companions. And here in our text, we see first that as he goes, the 12 are with him. And, and the 12, remember back in Luke 5 and 6, those are the apostles whom he's chosen. And you can think of this as a three-year internship or residency. They're following him about. They're learning his business, the way he does things, and they're growing and they're learning. And, and in the end, these are the 12 men, uh, well, minus Judas, who, used by the Lord, will turn the world upside down. But they're not ready for that yet, and so Jesus is mentoring them. He's discipling them. He's training them. He's equipping them uh, just uh, as he does for us today. But also with Jesus is this other crowd, not just the 12, but verse 2 says that also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities were with him. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven, de seven demons had gone out. My goodness, that's seven demons had gone out. That's, that's crazy to think about. And Joanna, the wife of, I don't know how you say that, Chuzza, Chuzza. The Bible's great for thinking of names for any of you who might be trying to think about that. Chuzza, there's an option for you. Chuzza, 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 Nema. Uh, Herod's household manager, and of course, Susanna. We know nothing about her. But then it says, many others, many others who provided for them out of their means. So I want you to note this, because I think we forget this quite often, that some of Jesus' first and most devoted disciples were women. Right? I think we forget that quite often. You have the 12, you have the 12 apostles, but often wherever Jesus went, there was this crowd of very, very devoted women disciples. And, and Luke is, is very sensitive to this. <clears throat> He's, he speaks a great deal about this. And as, as Josiah was sharing earlier, uh, this really is quite revolutionary. Uh, in Jesus' day, women were to be seen, but not heard, and preferably not even seen. They had some awful opinions, some awful thoughts. Women were held in very low esteem. Quite frankly, they were viewed as property and relegated to basically an invisible role. Uh, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, would pray every morning this, Lord God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a, guess what, a woman. It's pretty awful, isn't it? That's, that's the view uh, of, of women, the role of women in that day. And the Lord Jesus Christ flips it on its head and has some of, again, his first and most devoted followers are women. And again, Luke is very sensitive to this. Luke, out of all the Gospels, makes a great emphasis upon the role of women in Jesus' ministry and how Jesus uh, transformed their lives forever. Uh, just, just a few references here. Think of, think of Elizabeth right back in Luke 1, who's the mother of John the Baptist. And the faith that she has while her husband Zechariah laughs and doubts. So Zechariah doesn't look so great. Elizabeth, great, awesome, faithful follower of the Lord. You have Mary, of course. Great prominence is given to her in Luke chapter 1 and 2. She comes out as the model disciple, submitting to God's will and way in her life. Remember Anna, the prophetess? Remember her? When they bring Jesus to be circumcised on the eighth day, and Anna's there waiting, fasting, worshiping God day by day, because God had told her, you will see the Christ. And so she's there worshiping the Lord. Luke documents the miracles that Jesus performed for Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick. And we talked about how he healed the widow of, of Nain, whose son had passed away. 
Last week, we looked at the, the, the sinful woman who's at the Pharisee's house, at Simon's house. Remember how Simon is utterly scandalized and offended that, that this woman is in his house doing what she's doing, uh, but Jesus grants to her forgiveness. He warmly welcomes her and receives her, even though her notoriety was a sinner. That woman, a sinner. And Jesus transforms her from a sinner to a woman of God. A wonderful work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ there. Uh, Jesus shows compassion to the woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. He heals her while declaring that her faith had saved her. There's also the woman who was disabled for 18 years. She couldn't even stand up straight, and Jesus liberates her. Luke, Luke brings attention to all of these. Who can forget that scene of Mary and Martha? Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's like, like, come on, Jesus. She needs to be out here helping me, serving and doing this. And she's just sitting there, and, and Jesus says, blesses Mary, saying, that she's sitting at my feet learning from me, which I just need to point out again, that is a huge cultural no-no. Women, women were not to learn anything or be taught anything because that was considered a waste of time. <laughs> and so here Jesus invites Mary and Martha to sit at his feet and learn to be taught. <clears throat> you also have uh, women figuring prominently in Jesus' parables. Uh, one of my favorites I can't wait to get to is Luke 18, where you have... Uh, the parable of the persistent widow who just will not give up. Uh, I, lo- I love that parable, Luke 18, but it's, it's going to be a while until we get there. Uh, but we'll, Lord willing, we'll get there. Uh, significantly, uh, pretty much all of the male disciples flee in Jesus' hour of suffering, but where are the women? They're there, aren't they? They're there, especially at the cross. Women prepare the spices for Jesus' burial. And remarkably, this is huge. We don't think much of this, but again, culturally, you've got to put yourself in Jesus' day that when Jesus is resurrected, the first one to see him is a woman. And he commissions the women, go and tell that I'm risen. Again, in Judaism, a woman as a witness is worth nothing. But Jesus commissions them. You see what he's doing, Right? I was turning it upside down. It's not just Jesus. As you read through the scriptures, you see the prominent role that women are given in the church and the fulfillment of the Great Commission, advancing of God's kingdom. I think of Phoebe, uh, who Paul calls a patron, and Prisca, who Paul says risked risked her neck for him. Mary in Romans 16.6, Paul says, worked hard in the Lord. Titus chapters 1 and 2 speaks of how mature, older, faithful women are to teach the younger women to to disciple them, and and what a vital, crucial ministry that is. Think of Yodia and Syntyk, who labored side by side in the gospel, according to Philippians chapter 4. Romans 16, 7, Paul mentions Junia, who he says, suffered with me as a fellow prisoner. It's a fascinating thing to think about, isn't it? That all through the scriptures, uh, you put all that together, we see women serving as generous patrons, hard workers, edifying teachers, faithful evangelists, courageous partners, compassionate caregivers, and more. Which leads me to say, quite simply this morning, that women serving in the church should not be an exception, but an expectation. And that women are a vital, vital part of the body of Christ. In fact, quite frankly, if the church, uh, the church of Christ does not demonstrate authentic biblical uh, womanhood as gifted and vital to the work of the Lord, then many of our younger girls are going to run away from the church, right? Or I don't know if this is worse, but many will stay but never flourish because they're never taught the vital role that they have and the gifts that they have and encouraged to use those. The church should be a place where women are equipped and empowered to serve the Lord, challenged to carefully study Scripture, to deepen their faith and love and obedience to Christ, and overall flourish according to their gifts and personalities. Now hear me. The scriptures are plain, and we talked about this this morning in the discipleship hour, that the role of elder or pastor is for men only. And not just for any man, but you must be qualified, and it's quite a list of qualifications uh, that are very daunting. 
so, so the scriptures are very plain in that regard, in Titus 1 and Titus 3, that uh, those who are qualified to be elders or spiritual leaders in the church are men. It's also plain in Scripture that husbands are to humbly and lovingly lead their homes. The Bible is very plain about that, despite the hermeneutical gymnastics that a lot of people are trying to pull off out there to deny that. The Scripture is very plain on that. But sometimes I think we get so focused on what women can't do that we don't let them do much of anything at all. That should never be. That should never be. We ask too little of our spirit-filled sisters, and churches are the poorer for it. It's very safe to say that without women, the church of Christ would never be what God intends it to be. Amen? Our church will be all the more healthier and all the more God-glorifying as we encourage and empower women to excel still more in their gifts for the benefit of the church. Our church will be all the more effective in advancing God's kingdom and reflecting God's kingdom as women are encouraged in their walk with God and their study of God's word. And again, this, this is crucial and critical, and, and I, I love how Luke brings it out and just gives this opportunity to, to speak on it a little bit, because you know the day and age we're living in. You know they're trying to redefine manhood and womanhood. They're trying to redefine gender. They're trying to, trying to completely do away with it, Right? And so the church has this awesome opportunity as God's kingdom to manifest through his presence. No, this is what biblical manhood and womanhood looks like. And it's beautiful and it's freedom giving and life giving and joy giving. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see. That's the opportunity that we have as a church as we seek to advance his kingdom. For me personally, I would love to hear from the women in our church how I, as a pastor, can better serve and lead and pray for you. And I also want just all the women in our church to know how thankful I am for each one of you to be partners in the gospel with you, co-heirs of grace with you, and to labor side by side with you for the passionate advance of his gospel. Amen? Now, as we think about that, uh, Luke zeroes in on three women disciples. Uh, The first is Mary Magdalene. In my word, my heart just goes out to Mary Magdalene. Uh, She's for sure the most popular or famous, I should say, of Jesus' disciples. Uh, Luke tells us she had seven demons that uh, that Jesus cast out of her. Imagine Imagine how utterly ruined and ravaged her life was. Seven demons. I mean, she's, she's literally a playground for demons. And Jesus comes along and casts them out and transforms her life forever. And she's the first one to see the risen Christ. We also see uh, this woman named Joanna. She is the wife of Chusa, the, the manager of Herod's household. That's very, very fascinating because, as you know, Herod Antipas is the one who beheaded who? John the Baptist. And here she has an, or he has an insurgent in there. Here in his powerful kingdom, in his powerful palace, here's Joanna, a faithful follower of Christ. Hey, you think that took a lot of boldness? Think that's quite the risk? I think that's quite the risk she takes to be known as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe she's partly how the disciples communicated with John the Baptist. Now we heard some of the stuff he heard. Very interesting to think about. Of course, Susanna, we unfortunately know precious little about her other than she's, she's named here. These three women were graciously delivered by Jesus. What is their response? Their response to being graciously delivered is to be graciously generous. Uh, we read in verse 3 that these women provided for them, which is Jesus and the, the, the twelve, out of their means. In other words, they were patrons. They're the first woman's missionary aid or whatever, whatever you want to say there. Uh, they they uh, recognize how God has graciously uh, transformed their life and delivered them, and their response is to say, oh, well, we want to leverage our lives, leverage our resources uh, for Jesus and the 12 as they push on uh, with that ministry of advancing God's kingdom. And I would say that they are a rich encouragement and example to us who are in the kingdom of God by faith, that Jesus has graciously also delivered us and transformed our lives, yes? 
And our response to that should be exactly what it says in verse 3, that we leverage our lives for the advance of the kingdom. We leverage our time and our money and our resources and anything and everything else for the advancement of God's kingdom. So I have an immediate application that comes up with, with that thought. It's no secret, as you look through our, 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 uh, our budget and as you look through our bulletin, every week it shows you how much our giving is, uh, that we are roughly $19,000 behind budget. $19,000. <clears> and so this past Monday, a week ago from tomorrow, uh, the leaders we all met to kind of talk this through. And also just to get together and pray about, about it and what the Lord is going to do through it. And I, I just want to say, to preface all this, you guys should be getting to know me by now. I'm a big faith guy. And when I hear we're 19,000 in the hole, I get excited. I get excited. What's God going to do? When he puts us in situations where we recognize, oh, we're not omnicompetent. Oh, we don't have that. We don't have all the resources we need. And he forces us to fall back on him. Man, it's exciting. It's exciting to, to pastor at a time like this and to pastor through something like this. So we're, we're 19,000 behind, and, and we have this meeting, and we're reviewing things and considering different things and talking about different things. And uh, one of our leaders, Merlin, who we're just so thankful for, said, well, I think we need to pray about this, and we need to pray about this right now. And so that's what we did. We're not going to go against Merlin. We don't want the wrath of Merlin. Merlin's a wise guy, a good guy. So we, we, we heeded and prayed to, together. Almost immediately after praying, uh, it's suggested that what we should do as a church is set a date uh, in which we'll do a special love offering to kind of close that gap, uh, to catch up. And it was an immediate answer to prayer. Uh, And we set that date for August 28th. August 28th is a day that we're asking as a church that you would mark in your calendars and consider how the Lord might have you give above and beyond what you've been faithfully giving at this point. We set it that far out because that gives you time to do this. One, I want you to go to God's word and study as much as you can about what it says about giving. Let God's word compel you. Don't ever give because I'm up here saying what I'm saying. Give because God compels you and his love and his generosity in your life, yes? So we want to give you a month to study God's word. Let, Let God's word teach you and encourage you and help you and move you. Pray about it. Pray and pray and pray. How much would the Lord have me to give? Determine in your heart that and do that on August 28th. And I'm, again, super excited about that day. Uh, It's being done in response to God's gracious deliverance of us. And we're saying we love God. We love what he's doing. We love what he's done in our life. But I want to tell you something. On Monday night, we, we met and I said we prayed and we set that date for August 28th. Then a few days later... Uh, the church received a gift of $20,000. It's okay to praise the Lord when you hear that. It's okay to clap. It's okay to rejoice with him that he would, that he would do that. <clears throat> My thought in, in, in that is to say this. I, I'm thinking of that $20,000 gift as the first fruits. That that's just the beginning of what God wants to do. As we look to him in faith and depend upon him, we're 19,000 in the hole. We go, praise God. What are you going to do, God? And he says, I'll show you what I'm going to do. And this is just the first fruits. And it made me think of a a time in Spurgeon's life. You know, I'm always going to bring it back to Spurgeon somehow, right? Um, Spurgeon, uh, one one point in his life, the mid-1860s, Uh, began to lead his church to pray that God would guide them into some new work that they could carry on for his glory and the good of the people of London. Because London was filled with, they would call them street urchins, uh, orphans, uh, people who were hurting, very, very needy. And Spurgeon was very burdened about that, so he led his church to pray about that. That prayer was rapidly answered through a very unassuming lady named Anne Hilliard. Anne Hilliard was a very godly woman who had inherited a large fortune from a deceased family member and was looking for ways to use her money to advance God's kingdom. Those are her words, not mine. 
Uh, she carefully studied and waited for the right opportunity to invest her funds in that kingdom work. The opportunity came as she read a Spurgeon's newsletter that would go out called The Sword and the Trowel. She immediately sent a letter requesting to meet with Spurgeon, saying that she wanted to give 20,000 pounds, which today is 2.5 million. And in giving that money, uh, Spurgeon and their church were able to orf- open uh, an orphanage that is open till this day and continues to help uh, boys and girls of, of all ages and pointing them to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing how, how the Lord works and how that ministry continues today? So again, I don't, I don't know what God's going to do on the 28th. Like I said, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it because of who God is. And I just hope as you hear all this that you're excited about it. But I hope that you're especially more excited that God is on the move. God is on a mission to build his kingdom. And that he has called you and I to leverage our lives for that kingdom. To make the constant business of your life proclaiming to anyone and everyone Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Jesus is king. Believe upon him. Man, leverage your life for that. Leverage your life for that. I'm going to pray. As I do so, I invite uh, the worship team to come up and end us in worship. I, I do ask as you... Exit after the sermon. Remember, there's Coffee and Connect out there. Uh, great time. Just to, don't, don't rush off, in other words. Go to Coffee and Connect. Get some coffee. Get some snacks. Stay, talk, fellowship. Uh, pray with each other. Encourage one another. Get to know each other uh, as we seek to do kingdom work together. But I'm, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, man, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. And Lord, we are quick to come to you and say how weak we are how incompetent and insufficient we are, and how this doesn't discourage us. What this does is drives us to Jesus, who's omnicompetent, who is our sufficiency. Thank you uh, in your grace for calling us out of the kingdom of darkness, calling us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Help us to be on mission for you. Help us not to see life as running errands or going to work or whatever it is, but help us to see life as, as on mission, advancing God's kingdom. How can God use me here right now to advance the kingdom of God? How, how can I speak or talk or act or think in a way that will magnify the presence of the kingdom, Lord? We're, we're asking, we're praying, we're crying out to you, Lord, advance your kingdom here in our church. Advance it in Orangeville. Advance it in Barrie and Allegan County. Push back the gates of darkness. Push back Satan and his kingdom. Lord, through your kingdom of light, do that through us as we faithfully serve you and and are filled by your spirit and seek to glorify you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.